Worship is a part of our warfare. As we talked about last week, even from the book of Revelation, we're going to recognize that the church is consistently under spiritual attack. When you come to faith in Jesus, you're enlisting in his army in a real way. The war is on, right? So Revelation chapter 1, a church who is under attack. John is pointing us then to this God that we follow, this God who is triumph, this God who is all in all for us. So Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8 is what we're going to read. I'm going to pray and we're going to jump right into it. Um, there are a few other things that we want to get done this morning. We're going to try to figure that out towards the end. <laughs> so Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. The text reads, the Apostle John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you. Those are massive words, remember. Grace to you and peace, shalom, from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And who has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. For I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty One. All right, let's pray. We'll jump into it. God, we want to honor your word this morning. Um, we want to claim the promises of your word, that it does not return void, that it revives the soul, that it make wise the simple, that it is, as the psalmist says, sweeter than the honeycomb. God, we pray that by your word, even this morning, something of our hearts would be revived, something of wisdom might be granted to our hearts, but oh, that our souls would truly then be satisfied, that we would find something of the revelation of Jesus Christ as just sweetness to our soul. God, I pray that it's not just something that we take in, that's, oh, that's nice, Oh, that's somewhat encouraging, but it's sweetness for our soul. God, we pray that your word doesn't just get sticky like honey and frustrating to us. But even with the stickiness that it, once again, would be sweetness for our souls. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to work upon the promises that you've granted us about your word. Come now, make it sweet to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, what a week we've been through. Uh, <laughs> this past week has been 
crazy, uh, to say the least. We're, we're continuing, if I can just kind of rattle through it, not to provoke more fear in your hearts. We'll, we'll get to dealing with those fears in a moment. Uh, but we're continuing, on one hand, to hear of increasing cases of corona, while having then also been anxiously awaiting a confused and dramatic presidential decision, while facing a bit more unrest with the release of the Walter Wallace police footage. It's been a full week. And that, for some of you, is but just like added aggravation to your own personal uh, situations this past week. Um, there has been unexpected sufferings and trials represented in our church body, hearing of even multiple ER visits. Some of you have uniquely felt the devastating weight of grief this past week in remembrance of unique loss from a year or more ago. Still others of you are facing ongoing situations with um, incredible complexities that are just, you know, when you, when you face them, they're just altogether emotionally and physically exhausting, not to mention spiritually even confusing. And that still leaves then the normal temptations <laughs> and the spiritual apathy, right, that can seep into our hearts on a daily basis in weeks that don't carry any of all these other things. Uh, it's just been quite the week. And this, then, is simply the experience of our little church family, which is just one, if we could say one shade, one degree, like one version of the circumstantial trial and difficulty and warfare that is felt in the church globally this past week. It's been quite a week. But this is why the book of Revelation is so important to us. Check this out. The book of Revelation anticipated all your experiences this past week. It anticipated it. Remember, we noted last week, this is kind of review, that the church is under attack. The church, those who by grace alone, who have trusted in Christ alone, they are the express target of the enemy's attack. And as we've noted, the book of Revelation demonstrates that the enemy is going to attack the church globally and generationally, particularly with physical persecution, with temptations towards spiritual compromise, and with materialistic seduction. We've seen that in the past couple weeks. We've seen it evidenced in the seven churches. We'll see it symbolized in the later chapters of Revelation with these different beasts and this harlot coming on the scene. But then, that is just a part of the full picture. All the, of that happening while the enemy is also instigating and exploiting Throughout the world, varying degrees of political unrest, we've felt that. Civil unrest, we are feeling that. Economic unrest, we know that. And natural unrest, we know that. Which was all true in the historical period of these seven churches that we're going to be jumping into in the coming weeks. But also then, it's going to be further symbolized in the book of Revelation. Right? All of this stuff is what the church is going to be experiencing, Revelation has anticipated the stuff that we've been through this past week. It's why the book of Revelation is so important. It anticipates all of this, but more so, it reveals the true nature of these circumstances. 
Remember, the point of revelation or the point of the apocalyptic literature is meant to reveal the true nature of something. It's to pull back the heavenly perspective on our earthly experience. It's to show us what the heck is going on. That's what revelation is all about. And this is exactly then why John must begin. He must begin this letter by getting our eyes upon God. With all the stuff that's been happening this past week, God is actually front and center. Have you seen him? Have you looked to him? Have you realized him this past week? Or is it just news feeds? Sat in a diner yesterday with some of the guys involved in the uh, wedding last night. And we sat there, and there's big screens on either ends of the, the diner. We couldn't even talk through wedding stuff because our eyes keep going to all the election results that are happening, right? We couldn't even talk about the things that actually mattered in the moment because it was like this news vacuum sucking our attention. Do we see something of God in the circumstances that we find ourselves? Do, are we beholding who he is? John is saying, hey, Revelation has anticipated all the stuff that you're going through, but oh, he's bringing God to the forefront of our hearts and minds and saying you must behold your God. He must be elevated in your hearts and minds. He must consume your attention in these times. We must Get our attention upon our God. The point of this uh, introduction, verses 4 through 8, is really so that God would be elevated in our hearts and minds. And so last week we saw that in part, it's this God who must be elevated in our hearts and minds, who alone is our supply. Remember that? God is, just so we can rehearse a little bit, God is always on the scene of our circumstances. He's always on the scene of our circumstances. And therein, he has postured himself, the triune God. He postures himself to supply power and peace to his own. That was the idea of John saying, grace and peace to you from him who was and who is and who is to come. It's this God who is postured to grant us something of the presence of his grace and peace to us. Just know that when it comes to grace and peace, it's not just these cute little religious terms in here saying, yeah, God might get to you if he gets around to it. No, it's to say, no, the eternally present God is with you by his all-sufficient spirit to supply his grace and peace to you by the authority of the resurrected king. This is who our God is. He is on the scene, and rightfully so in all of our circumstances, to supply the presence of his grace and peace to us. He's not just lobbing us a gift from a distance. He's not just running some distribution center from heaven saying, oh, my child needs some grace and peace. Well, that's going to show up to your doorstep. That's not the way God works. God invades our circumstances. He is present with us in all that we are going through. He is the eternally present God, who by his all-sufficient spirit supplies grace and peace to us by the authority of the resurrected king. This is who he is. He's with us. He's not at a distance from us. Grace and peace is the realization of his presence here and now. John is saying, oh, 
that our hearts and minds would be elevated to behold this God who alone is our supply. That's what we saw last Now this morning, the God, secondly, who alone is our worship, verse 6. When you have seen this triune God who is postured to supply the presence of his grace and peace to us, and realizing that we were undeserving of it in the first place, we were lost in our sins, we were rebels against his throne, and yet he's done everything so that we might be the recipients, recipients of his grace and peace. Incredible. What else do you have to do but to worship? That's part of what John's doing. He's saying after you behold this God, you got to get to worship. But worship also beyond that, besides the fact of it being just the right response, Worship is essential for our warfare. It's why John calls the church into this doxology in verse 6. It's a, a praise. He's give, giving particular attention and exaltation to Jesus. Worship, in fact, for us is an act of our warfare. On one hand, as we've seen in the past as a church, it uniquely sets the attention of our hearts, minds, and bodies even upon this God. That's what music does for us as empowered by the Spirit. It's a grace to us in distractions of our minds and all the confusion of our hearts and even when it comes to our bodies. Your bodies were made for worship. For yes, all your week is worship. So what you do, what you put into your body, how you function throughout the week is worship. And yet when we gather together, as God's people singing his songs in corporate worship, praising him like John is praising him in this text, it is aligning our hearts and minds and even bodies to who he is. We need that. It's part of our warfare when our minds and hearts are being contended for. Worship is essential for our warfare. It aligns us with our God. But also know this, that in worship, don't forget, what we're doing here, just to get away from the notes for a moment, what we're doing here, if I just have to say it again, like what was that at the end? What are we doing? Worship. We're saying, Lord, we're going off script for a moment. We're going to allow you to direct our attention and our focus right now. Right? So it's song, songs being spontaneously birthed by the Spirit, we could say. We're taking what he's giving us in the moment and putting it into song, returning it right back to him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. We're actually joining in the moment of that transaction. He's giving us grace. He's aligning our hearts and minds to him. And what does he do? He shines truth on it and saying, yes, Jesus is worthy of our highest praise. Sing it again. Sing it again. Sing it again. Do battle with those truths. Step in to true worship where we're receiving from him and returning to him that which is rightfully his. In those moments, God is working things that we in our own strength cannot work. When God's people gather to worship, this is a unique setting. 
God promises to come and accomplish things in our midst as we gather together. I love that we're gathering together. <laughs> it's hurt not seeing many of you, right? But as we gather together, it's God's promise that he intends to work unique grace through the gathered worship of his people. Worship is essential to our warfare. We could, um, I have to keep moving, but we could spend a lot of time there proving that fact. God accomplishes great things through the worship of his people. It's why choirs in the Old Testament will lead armies. Don't be, wor don't be going to war, first and foremost, with spears and shields. Go with worship, right? It's the idea there. Choirs then lead groups around big cities and then shout and blow their trumpets and walls fall down. It's while David will sit with King Saul and play music. And what happens? Something of a spiritual transaction happens in those moments. I don't understand it all. But God shows up in power through worship and the evil spirit leaves Saul. That's why worship regularly would attend prophetic ministry in the Old Testament. It set the atmosphere to receive the word of God. Why do we sing and then preach? Right? We're aligning ourselves with God through worship. We're receiving what he has to prepare ourselves for then the objective word, his truth, to be brought to bear upon our hearts and minds. Worship is essential for our warfare. Now let's jump into the text more specifically. Notice the nature of this worship in verse 6. John says, to him, that is to Jesus, be, and if you see it in the Greek, it's even more explicit. What he is saying is that Jesus is to receive the glory and the dominion. The, like the highest glory and the highest dominion. John is not just saying, oh, well, Jesus gets a little respect and honor because he's, he's a pretty cool guy. No, he's saying he gets all of it. He is to receive the all-consuming glory of our lives, and he is the one who holds all dominion over all things. John is saying, this is our worship. He gets it all. It's a powerful statement. Glory in this context refers to the value or worth of something, and so John is saying Jesus gets all the glory. He gets all the worth. He gets all the value. He is... Nothing else in this world is to carry the value that he carries. He carries the value, and therefore he is worthy of our lives. He is to receive the dominion. That is, he is the one who holds all authority in heaven and on earth. And you were, if you were with us last week, you saw where Adam failed Right? Where the enemy tempted, authority has been compromised, but what has Jesus done? He's come to reclaim authority over heaven and over earth. He is the ruler of the kings of this earth. He holds all dominion. John has to worship. He has to worship in light of that. He has to say, oh yes, it is Jesus who holds the dominion over all things. This dominion, this unrivaled authority over heaven and earth that can say to a dead man, come forth, and Lazarus comes forth, who could say to a demon, come out, and it immediately re releases the hold on a young boy's life. It's also the authority 
than that one must have to see, as the book of Revelation will point us to, to see all things made new again one day. He's going to leverage his power and authority for our good to see all things made new. To him belongs the glory and the dominion. This is the nature of John's worship, saying, church, you better start worshiping. You better start recognizing who, who it is who holds the glory and the dominion. But notice the substance of this worship. He is the one who is ascribed with this glory and this dominion, but he is the very one who, verse 6, he loves us. He loves us. That's not something past tense. Well, he loved us at a point in time. It's not some promised love. Eh, Maybe you might get it. Now, right now, in all the craziness, the one who holds the glory and the dominion loves you. Loves you. He loves you. Now, Here's the point. It sometimes seems as though in times of chaos, in times of darkness, in times of confusion, like we kind of feel like we're in, we can lose sight of his love. And so what John is doing is like what many other uh, biblical writers do. What they say is God is loving you. And then what they do is they go kind of like hinge that on something objective. Because in the circumstances, you might feel like, man, I just don't see God's love in the moment. Well, then it's, a, it's to say, okay, let's look at something totally objective in which he has demonstrated his love to you. So John is saying, oh, he is the one who loves you. But how is this love objectively expressed? Notice what he says. He freed us from our sins. Literally, the the term is he loosed us. Now, again, John loves hyperlinks. He loves using the Old Testament to kind of fill in what he's talking about. This is a hyperlink back to the Old Testament Exodus account. It's where they were in bondage and God loosed them. He set them free. And, and, And notice, how did God set them free in the Exodus account? Through the blood of the? Lamb. John is saying he loves us because he freed us from our sin. How? How? Verse 5. I believe it is. By his blood. God's people in the Exodus were released. They were loosed by the blood of the Lamb. Now the church are those who have been freed. How? By the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ. John will then go on throughout the the book of Revelation to talk about this lamb, uh, specifically in Revelation 5, right, who takes away the sin of the world, but he is the one who now stands uh, as though he had been slain. It's as if he's died, but he's alive. He's a living lamb, one whose blood has been poured out for us. It's to say, Christ loves us. Why? Because objectively in the past, he did something for us. He became for us something of a better exodus. He loosed us. He broke the chains that had us. He is the one then that ultimately has set us free. And how has he done it? By becoming a better lamb. 
a better Passover lamb. By shedding his blood upon that cross, he has set us free. He loves us. But for John, that's still not enough to see. He didn't just do something for us. He does something to us. It's another kind of objective category that we can kind of hang this idea that God loves us. Jesus loves us. Well, how do you love us? Because right now the circumstances are hard to see that love. Oh, he saved us. He loosed us by his blood. But also notice what he did to us. He made us a kingdom and priests. Now again, hyperlink, right? It's again like this, this, this arrow pointing us back to the Exodus account, pointing us back to Exodus 19, where God promised to his people, notice the text on the screen, you will be a kingdom of priests if you keep my covenant. Did they keep the covenant? They did not keep the covenant. Again and again, they struggled, they struggled, they struggled as God's people. They failed to keep the covenant, but Revelation verse 6 says that it's Jesus who has made us a kingdom and priest. In other words, while in the Old Testament, Israel failed to keep the covenant, here and now Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the Old Testament requirements, and now on the basis of his perfect life and his glorious resurrection, he makes us, the church, a kingdom and priests. Do you see? What Israel could not become through Christ, the church has become a kingdom and priests. Now you may say, okay, what's the significance of kingdom and priests? You seem excited about it. <laughs> it's exciting. Folks, through Jesus, we have been made citizens of his kingdom. That is massive. It's to say we share in something of his authority and dominion. It's why the promise is held out to us as his people that we will rule and reign with Christ. Yes, one day in full perfection when, when all things are made new, but even now the church has something of the investiture of, God, of Christ's authority and dominion. That is why Satan does not have full sway upon us. We carry something of Christ's authority and dominion. It's why Jesus will say, Matthew 28, right? All authority has been given to me to heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make what? Disciples. Disciples, followers of me. He's authorized us. He's given us something of a standing of his own authority and dominion to come against the enemy, to proclaim the gospel, to see people come to faith, and to train them in the way of righteousness. He, as the king, is, has given us his authority his dominion to do that particular task. We as the church, we could say it this way, are authorized representatives of God who mediate the presence of God. What did, what did priests do in the Old Testament? They just sit around, go through kind of uh, religious liturgies, just as routine to just kind of get by for the day, feel like they did something nice and wonderful, feel good about themselves for doing their temple duties? No. 
They made sacrifices. They mediated between God and the people. Something of the presence of God. They were representatives and they mediated something of the presence of God to others. So in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 19, God is saying, I want to be the channel through which my presence flows through you. You are going to be my priest. The world will know something of my presence through you. That's the whole idea. Now the church has become just that. You are the channel of God's presence to a lost and dying world. Oh, I just thought we were supposed to go through religious, kind of show up, do our thing, have our small groups. Isn't that great? No. A lost and dying world is to encounter the living God through you. That's how Jesus has loved us. He's freed us from our sin and now empowered us to be the channel of his own presence to a lost and dying world. He has made us. This is not something yet to happen. No, this is something that has happened. He has made us a kingdom and priests. And notice what he says to his God and Father. This is so important. This is not just some throwaway phrase. Just as Jesus walked in the power and authority of the Holy Spirit as he lived his life and did everything unto the Father, now the church as a kingdom and priests are to do likewise. Jesus becomes something for us, if I could say it this way, the prototype of the new covenant. You want to know what your life should look like? You look at Jesus. But Jesus did all these incredible things. Yep, he did. And he was the prototype of the new covenant. He is what you, in some sense, are to be and to do. That's why Jesus could say in John 14, eh, I've done some works, but you're going to do even greater works. Right? Those are massive statements that can't just be argued away. When Jesus then recruits the 12 and the 72, sends them out, and what does he say? I give you my authority to do what? Well, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Well, church, <laughs> in our Western mind, we struggle to get our heads around that kind of stuff. Right? But that's nothing less, really, than what God has called us to as his kingdom and priest. Now, you may say, Dan, why, why do you always stick your finger on those particular points? It's because the Western church has largely lost focus that that is actually part of the mission of what we are to be about as God's kingdom and priest. Does that take away from our pursuit of holiness? First so, uh, Peter chapter 2, Peter's going to say, hey, you're a kingdom and priests, church. And you know what he then says? He says, you should then be thinking about how you're to interact with civil authorities. That's part of what a kingdom and priest needs to consider. He'll also then talk about marriage and family. Because you're a kingdom and priest, your marriages and families should look different. Right? He goes on to talk about the unity of the church. Because you're a kingdom and priest, things should look different in how you relate to one another as opposed to how the world would relate to one another. 
That is all a part of this reality of being a kingdom and priest. How will people in this world know something of the presence of God through the church? They will see your testimony in that sense. How you relate with civil authorities, how you relate with one another, what your family looks like, what your marriage looks like. That's going to say uh, a world of things too about God to the world, right? But it's also not to forget the fact that God has given us an actually strange kind of list of things that we are to be about. Don't reject the supernatural things. By the way, casting out demons and healing the sick is no more supernatural than the work of God's grace and conforming you to the holiness of Christ. That's a supernatural work. Don't lessen it. So, Jesus has demonstrated his love to us in making us a kingdom and priest. The world should encounter something of the presence of God through you and through me. He has loved us. John is saying this is why Jesus is just so utterly praiseworthy. He is the God who alone should be our worship. He is presently loving us and objectively so. How do we know that? Because he became for us, if you think through it, a better exodus freeing us from our sins. He has become for us a better Passover lamb by his blood, and by his blood we triumph in the book of Revelation, and he has become for us the better Israel, whose requirements he fulfilled and whose promised benefits he now bestows upon us. This is our God, who alone is our worship. But then John jumps into verse 7 and 8, referencing the God who alone who is our confidence. So John elevates God in our hearts and minds by pointing to the God who alone is our confidence. He declares, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Again, you can't read that without recognizing John's hyperlinks. John is constantly going to the Old Testament. John points us back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, which refers to the Son of Man coming with the clouds. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, then states, when, when they look upon him whom they pierce, they will wail on account of him. These Old Testament texts that John now is freighting into his own uh, introduction. And so we have to say, okay, why are they there? Well, in both of those contexts, it's not about judgment. Both of those contexts, Daniel chapter 7 and Zechariah chapter 12, are actually referring to revival happening. Why will they wail? Because they will recognize their sin and they will trust in their Messiah. It's the wailing of repentance that's taking place, right? But then just a little bit further down in the text, uh, storyline of scripture, we find that Matthew 24, 30, Jesus in his ministry will reference these same passages. And instead of talking about revival, what Jesus talks about is coming judgment. So by the time John's using these phrases, you're sitting back saying, John, what is it? Is it revival or is it judgment? And the answer is yes. 
Jesus will continue to move in power by his spirit through his church to see many come to repentance until the day when Jesus rends the sky and comes down and judges all and therein makes all things new. This is the idea here. There will be wailing and moaning throughout the generations of the church. In the last days, there will be wailing and moaning. Why? Because people will come to encounter their Savior. They will fall up upon their knees in repentance. They will be saved. Church, <laughs> yes, that's good news for us. The mission hasn't stalled out. Revival yet to take place. Souls yet to be saved. Wailing of repentance yet to be had, and yet we must all consider the fact that one day there will be a wailing in which Jesus is coming back in judgment, and even as the book of Revelation says, this wailing will take place as those who hide themselves in caves and in mountains and actually call on the rocks to fall upon them. Judgment day has arrived, in other words. People will be brought to account. And if they have not trusted it in Jesus, they will suffer his judgment. Folks, let that motivate your heart towards loving those around you who do not know Jesus. For whatever reason, the church has been like, oh, we don't want to talk about God's judgment. You know, this eternal conscious hell that's awaiting those who do not trust in Jesus. That's kind of, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> no, it's real. Jesus isn't going to apologize for it. He doesn't apologize for it. And he calls on the church to hold that as a true motivation for folks considering just who he is. He is a holy God. He's a consuming fire. And if they don't find mercy with him now, they will find judgment and punish, punishment with him later. It's what will happen. Church, let it motivate you. If I can just be blunt with my own weaknesses. We were at a wedding yesterday. You know, congratulations, guys. It's crazy that you made it this morning. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> So even yesterday, it was like, you feel the tension of speaking about the gospel. And you feel the thickness in the air, spiritually speaking, of just like doubts and pushback to all of that. You feel it. You feel the pressure. You feel the weight of those moments at times, right? And so it's real. But let the, this reality of who our God is motivate us. Motivate us towards loving others, right? It's an act of love. Right? They, they may chalk it up as you're pushing your religious agenda upon them, but in reality, you are loving them, sharing this Savior with them. Folks, again, John is saying, this is the one who must alone be our confidence. He will bring revival, but he will bring judgment. The question then that we must consider, do you know this Jesus? You will either know him through salvation or you will know him through damnation. Do you know this Jesus? Is he your confidence? But then finally we hear the voice of God.
closing out this introduction, verse 8. I love that John just like gives God that space in a sense, you know, to, hey, God, you want to come to the mic? <laughs> Here it is, verse 8. I am Alpha and Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty One. Alpha and Omega is the, of course, first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. It's a, it's a name that highlights more or less God's complete sovereignty over all things from beginning to the end and therefore everything in between as well. Uh, uh, but additionally, again, John is just like, you just don't have time to study all the stuff that John is referring to because the name Alpha and Omega is pushing us back. Hyperlink, again, Old Testament, I don't know how many times I'm gonna keep saying that throughout the Revelation series. John is drawing upon Old Testament text again and again when it comes to this name Alpha and Omega, and in large part from the book of Isaiah. And what we find as this name is alluded to again and again is it's always alluded to in contrast to man's idolatry. So you're going to hear statements like, who is it that weighs the nations like dust on scales? Who orchestrates nations? Who establishes generations from the beginning? Who founded the earth and hung the heavens? Who establishes the future? <laughs> Do your idols? The obvious answer, right, is no. Only Alpha and Omega. Only this God who is above all. Only this God is the one who, who weighs the nations like dust upon the scale, who orchestrates events, who orchestrates nations and establishes generations. Only this God. Think about the potential idols in your own life, how weak and frail they are. Of course, we're not talking about necessarily little idols set up in your house but it's the things that gain your fundamental attention, the things that are for you glory, value, worth, the thing that you hold in high esteem, the thing that you give the majority of your desires and your attention. If it is above and beyond God, then what you have is an idol set up in your heart and life. But then the, the point here is, is that Alpha and Omega? Is that the one that you can really trust in when political stuff is going crazy, circumstantial stuff going crazy, economic stuff going crazy, civil unrest taking place? Is that the one that you can really trust? No way. Stuff that we place our hopes in becomes quite ridiculous when we really consider all the needs and struggles in this world, not to mention the needs and the struggles of our own hearts and lives. The idea of Alpha and Omega is to just demonstrate how vain and empty our idolatry really is. It's to say, trust in Alpha and Omega. He's the one who holds all things in his hand. But like John began this introduction, he now concludes, the voice of Yahweh declares, I am Alpha and Omega, who alone is worthy of our confidence, but he is also the one who is, who was, and is to come. As Alpha and Omega, he is over all time, over all space, and yet he, he is, as we saw last week, he is eternally present for us. That's why John is taking who was, who is, and is to come, and he's taking that middle section and he's fronting it. He's saying, yes, he is the eternal God, but nope. 
the emphasis, he is. He is with you. The Alpha and Omega is eternally present for you. He's worthy of your confidence. He's with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Again, it's, it's stressed that our God is simply worthy of our confidence. Alpha and Omega is present with you and he's for you. Finally, he's the Almighty One. It's the period at the end, right? He is the Almighty One, the Lord of Heaven's armies, in other words. It's the same name for the Lord of hosts that you've seen throughout Scripture at different points and times. Once again, it's restating something we've already looked at, that it's Jesus who holds all authority over every political and spiritual power on the face of the earth. He holds all all dominion over heaven and earth. And so as Abraham Kuyper says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Therein he is altogether worthy of our confidence. He is the almighty one. But as Revelation will prove, just to kind of like, Make sure we're qualifying things correctly. Revelation will prove that while God is worthy of our confidence, he is worthy of our confidence even unto death. Confidence in this God does not mean easy life. Confidence in this God means there is going to be opposition, there is going to be attack, even at times there is going to be confusion, but he is worthy of our confidence even unto death. So what a week we've had, right? One of the memes that I saw uh, earlier this week was actually, what a year it's been this week, you know? Um, it's been so full. Well, here's what we can know through it all. God will be faithfully supplying his grace and peace to us as his people. God will faithfully meet us in our worship of him, and God will not fail to be the solid rock for our faith and confidence. Therefore, may he be elevated in our hearts and lives. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you. Um, we thank you. We thank you, Abba, for the love that you've shown us. Uh, when we were dead in our sins, thank you for your sovereign plan to have your son come, to become that better exodus for us, to become that better Passover lamb for us, to become the better Israel for us, to fulfill all that we could never fulfill for ourselves before you. Jesus, we honor you. Thank you, King, for your incredible accomplishments, and thank you for your profound kindness that you would then give us something of your own righteousness. Thank you that you would give us something of the benefits of your accomplishment. Thank you that you grant us something of authority over the enemy. But Jesus, we also thank you that even if we are to follow you unto death, 
that even in death you have us. You're worthy of our confidence. So though, though the mountains shake, though the earth melts, Lord, we look to you. Spirit of God, I pray that you would, you, you would elevate these truths in our heart and mind, that we would not encounter our week and the stuff happening in newsreels or whatever else without seeing you high and lifted up, the one to whom is all the glory and the dominion. I want to take just a little bit of time as we close um, there are a few words shared earlier. I want to be faithful to see those words brought to bear upon us, just as maybe we do a little bit of ministry together. Uh, but the first thing that I just wanted to, to do that I felt the Lord provoking us to do this morning is that for any who do not know Jesus, that there would be a call to see them come to faith. So if, uh, if you're here or you're at home, um, I'd encourage you. I'd encourage you that there, there is no other rock that you can place your life upon than Jesus. Anything else will be sinking sand. It will be sinking sand. There is nothing else that can satisfy the longings of your heart. Your heart has infinite longings that can only be satisfied in the infinite glories of Christ. So I would call you to turn from your way of living and trust in Jesus. As we like to say, he will have you. Smile upon his face. He will have you. The benefits of his accomplishments will be yours. Forgiveness of sin will be yours. A covering of your shame will be yours. This doesn't mean that life gets all of a sudden easy <laughs> by any stretch. The enemy will now consider you an enemy. But Jesus will be the author and perfecter of your faith. He will not fail you. So turn from your sin and trust, trust in him. He is worthy of your confidence. You will find him to be a solid rock, something that would give you footing amidst all the chaos of this life. If you've never trusted in him, today is the day of salvation. He will have you. So I feel like specifically folks at home on live stream, maybe this is for someone or some there, but I'd, I'd encourage you even now to just get on your knees before him Acknowledge your sin before him and turn to him in faith. Trust that what he's done for you at that cross is enough to satisfy the guilt of your sin. And it's that easy. Call upon his name and you'll be saved. 
This is not a work you must do, no cleaning up of yourself to receive this good gift from him. He takes us as we are. And if you're struggling right now, the enemy may be saying, your sin is too great, you've done too many things. This is just a, a, a goofy religious moment. Don't get too into it. That's the enemy at work, keeping you from the author of life. So reject those lies. Reject those lies. We pray against the enemy even now in Jesus' name that truth would reign in hearts and minds. He'll have you. And if there are any here who say, man, I, I, I need that, I need to make that decision. As we sing this song, I'd like you just to come up. I'd love to just talk with you, pray with you as other words are given then this morning. So let's go ahead and stand. We'll sing and then a few word, other words will be given. I encourage you to come.
call upon the Lord For he alone has broken every chain Rise, your shackles are no more For he alone is strong enough to save Hallelujah In pre-service the picture that I saw was the remnant church reaching up to heaven and bringing heaven down and saying there is still a remnant that's hungry. There's still a remnant that will represent Christ. There's still a remnant that says, yes, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the ending, the true and living God. He still breaks shackles. He still sets the captives free. He's still here to give us miracles, signs, and wonders for the church, this church, Mercy Gate Church, the international church, because there is still a remnant that's crying out for change, that's crying out for radical radicalness that limbs will come forth and sickness will be gone and grief will be no more and I believe that I'm standing in front of that remnant church I believe that we have yet we have yet to see what God is up to because this church has walked in the obedience of the almighty and when people are hungry barrels to libya people give and when people need food at their home where they're knocking and saying here you go because we're obedient to the word of god in the book of revelation by the word of the lord and by our testimonies so i want to give you a word of encouragement today and let you know you are the remnant ones. You are the remnant church. And there is still a people. And there is still a God who hears the peoples crying out and saying, help me, deliver me, save me. Save me from my wretchedness, from my way, from my wickedness. Save me. I'm the one who needs someone to stand in the gap. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Jehovah Shalom, my peace. So his peace is here if you need it. His salvation has been presented to you. Receive it. His anointing is in you to work through you so that you can be part of that remnant testimony to say, I had shackles. I needed deliverance. And God came to me and set me free. We have many people here who can say that. So be encouraged. Your shackles are no more. For Jesus Christ has broken every chain. Every chain, every change. Yes, let's clap onto the Lord, Remnant Church. Let's give and rejoice this morning, this afternoon, that we stand firm in Christ. Hallelujah. Come on. 
Praise him. Loosen the shackles. Be set free. Shake it off. Shake this week off. Because change is coming. Hallelujah. So again, in pre-service, um, as we were talking and praying, God was showing me an image of Pharaoh and the mentality of being Pharaoh, being that person that had a chosen lot for destruction, had a chosen lot that nothing ever got better. He was chosen to fail, and I feel like I was expressing, I felt that there's some people that feel like they have this cross to bear and nothing's ever going to take it off. That they're, they put on a coat and they're holding the oppression of something that's not meant for them. And God wants to offer that freedom from feeling like this grief will overwhelm you this pain will destroy you and it's what god has chosen for you and those are lies and i want to pray into that that god god would return the joy jesus we all at one point in time and some even at this moment have received the lie that this where we are right now the the sufferings the the grieving the crap that lies amongst our lives sometimes has been a choosing from the Father that this has been an appointed lot that this is going to be our life that it's never going to get better that's a lie God God that is a lie tear the veil that keeps us from seeing the goodness of the Father. Tear the veil that keeps us from saying, oh, well, if I just deepen the void by things that won't satisfy, maybe if I accumulate enough, it'll fill the hole that I feel right now. That is a lie. Expose the lie that things and relationships will satisfy the need of a loving God in their heart right now. So, Jesus, we pray that you come and you confront what they are wearing. You confront the clothing that is heavy and bitter and, and enhances the void in their heart. And you help them remove it. I just, yeah. I feel like it's, it's like a tearing, you know, like when, when the Jews, when they, would, when they would grieve, they would rip their clothing. And I, I just see this just ripping it off tearing it off expose yourself to the lord a wound that is constantly bandaged cannot heal we need to stop god we need to open we need to air out we need you to come and tend to our wounds come and heal because you are the healer Come and comfort because you called yourself the comforter. We would have no need for a comforter if there wasn't seasons of life where we needed your comfort. You came to be all things, knowing that we would encounter all things in our walk and in our life. So God, I pray that you encounter those of us who have felt or continue to feel that this is a position that you have chosen for us to remain in. 
No more let Pharaoh come in the mentality that this is what he has for you. That is not the goodness of the Lord. That is the lie of the enemy. So Jesus, come. Come like only you can and tear the veil. Pull off the cloak and expose us to the goodness of the Lord, the way that we were supposed to encounter it. The encounter that Adam and Eve had in the garden of walking amongst you is still what you have chosen for us, God. And Jesus came to make it possible. Let us not bury ourselves. When you have called us to life, let us not bury ourselves in the grave of despair. We thank you for your life and your fulfillment and your peace, Jesus. You have come to remove the shackles that our chains would be no more, lest us not find enjoyment in wearing them. Remove the joy of the things that don't satisfy and come and be the sufficiency that will meet the void within us. We praise you, Jesus. Um, just the picture that I had uh, earlier this morning um, as we were praying pre-service was um, guys circling you, Eric. And if you're comfortable, guys, we're circling Eric, holding hands. That's the way I see it. Um, if you're comfortable with that, if it's Corona, spear can handle, you know, not doing that. But uh, nonetheless, just gathering around you, the text that comes to mind, uh, Eric, is as, as the... As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. I just think there needs to be a kind of something of a, an established fortress, even represented by church brothers coming around and just praying for you. So if there's a few guys that can just get around Eric, pray for him. Um, and by the way, we don't just typically point out people, but... We've been hanging with Eric for the last couple of weeks, so it's like, hey, it's coming, man. It's coming. <laughs> All right. All right. What I'm going to do is release people. Forever, whoever wants to stay and receive like they can. So. All right, what we're going to do is if you have to leave, we're going to go ahead and let you roll. Um, but for any of those who those two particular words may just like, man, they resonate with me, I need to slow down and just like give God space to do his work. Uh, feel free to remain. And if you need prayer, like we'll be up here. They're going to keep on playing a little bit so you don't have to like feel like you got to roll. Uh, but for those who need to roll, feel, feel free to do that. So grace and peace to y'all. Have a, have a great week.